You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. So, here you are. Too foreign for home, too foreign for here. Never enough for both. Ijuoma Umebinyo, Diaspora Blues. What makes you smile and adds a spring to your step? What does it mean to belong? And how do we build a home away from home? Diaspora Blues is a show that contemplates what is and what could be. Join Busto and Bigwa every Monday at 2.30 on 3CR Community Radio. Produced by Jan. Welcome to Diaspora Blues, a 3CR program produced and presented on the sovereign lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Diaspora Blues also airs on Tuesdays at 3.30pm on Radio Skid Row, a community radio station in Sydney. My name is Ayan Sherwa. This week we're chatting to two men who are achieving amazing feats in their respective fields. We're going to hear from these brave and talented men soon. But up first, let's get some tunes. This track is one of my 2020 favourites and it's called Homecoming Queen by Thalma Plume. Cause in 1967 
Kutcher Edwards. Beyond the Bars is 3CR's annual prison radio series, where we share the mic with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander inmates in Victorian prisons. We started in 2002, and this year marks 20 years on the air. Be sure to tune in at 11am each morning from Monday July the 5th to Friday July the 9th for Beyond the Bars 2021 broadcast. For more information, head to our website, 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars. Thoughts within, visions I see, daring to dream my destiny. You're listening to Diaspora Blues, a 3CR program produced in Nam and played on Radio Skid Row, Tuesdays at 3.30pm. Before the community announcements, we played Homecoming Queen by Thalma Plume. Homecoming Queen is from Thalma's 2019 album, Better in Black. As I said before, today we're going to hear from two brothers who are living their best life while speaking back to white supremacy. I should actually call this episode Black Boy Joy because that's what it really is about. Opening the show today is Guido Mello, an Afro-Brazilian Latinx multilingual author and poet. I asked Guido to share a bit about himself and this is what he had to say. I'm always on the go and changing and hopefully getting better at who I am. But I think in an origin or who I was, or who I, uh, where I come from. I think I'm like I was born in Brazil, and I'm a, an Afro-Brazilian uh, living in the diaspora of the diaspora. You know, I was diasporic in Brazil uh, because of um, colonization and, and slavery, and then I migrated to Australia about 20 years ago. And live here on the stolen lands uh, of the Wurundujeri people. What brought you to Australia? Uh, yeah, I came with my partner at the time. Um, yeah, in the early 2000s. I want to look at an article that you wrote for SBS Voices that I think gives a really good background about who you are and 
you know, how you see the world and so on. So the article is about how moving to Australia changed your destiny. So if you had stayed in Brazil, what would your destiny have been? You know, I'm a believer of mathematical numbers and statistics. And um, every 23 minutes, Afro-Brazilian man or person, actually, is murdered, you know, violently murdered in Brazil. Uh, on average, most youth Brazilian uh, live 27 years. Uh, I left Brazil when I was t- <laughs> when I was 25. So you know, I believe the circumstances there would mathematically be more prone for me to be either dead or extremely in extreme poverty. Someone who in the article gave you, I guess, the fuel to move and to kind of pursue your destiny, so to speak, is your father. Can you tell us what he told you? Yeah, so, he, you know, he said, you know, moving to Australia, person that moves, he actually quoted um, the Talmud. And the Talmud is the Jewish book um, of thinking. And there's a saying there that says, uh, whoever moves their location moves their destiny. It sort of stuck with me, you know, because it's sort of um, I, like I knew, I knew then that I was really moving. Like I knew my destiny would be different, you know, because I was uh, going away from the realities of being an Afro-Brazilian living in Brazil under so much oppression. I knew, and my father always made sure that I understood you know, it's so funny because he never thought, you know, a lot of parents would say, you know, I like my children's close to me or, you know, it's really important for children to be around. But he always pushed me in a way to go away because, um, you know, not necessarily overseas, but just away from real, away from the reality because the dangers were too, too great for kids like me, you know, uh, in Brazil, like a young, skinny, black boy just wasn't safe in the 90s and 2000s god it must have been such a huge sacrifice for him as well like obviously he has your best interest at heart but forcing your son or encouraging your son to move away is also I'm guessing it would have not been easy on him too so kudos to your father for having that foresight as well so I guess as a parent today I'm a parent of of three kids and I believe the the job of a parent is not to be liked or to get instant rewards, but the job of a parent is to make sure your children survive and survive in the best way possible. So I understand what he did because I would do the same. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, my mother did the same thing as well. Like I came to Australia without my family. So, Mm. and I know for her, it was really hard. Like we've talked about it now and, you know, we've made peace about it, but it was really hard and she didn't do it because she disliked me or anything. She knew if I stayed in Somalia, my chances would have been, you know, very, yeah, like it wouldn't have been good. Like my life would not have come out the way it has. So she sacrificed a lot for me and I do really appreciate that. Um, So yeah. let's stick to that same article because In the article, there's a quote that I'd love for you to um, expand on. Sure. 
in the article you write and I quote racism against black people in Brazil is pervasive and acts in several ways um you've sort of skirted around that but can you tell us what life is like for an Afro-Brazilian yeah sure um I just want to just touch base with uh, the whole parent standing thing one of the biggest myths of the 20th century is Superman and the main premises of Superman is shipping his baby away from Krypton. So the idea of your children surviving is more important than your survival. It's not just my father's or mine, but it's really universal, or your mother's as well, but it's really universal. In regards to racism in Brazil, um, racism, like a lot of people believe that racism precedes policy and racism precedes uh, races, but it is actually the other way around. Governments and institutions create realities that block Black people, African descendants, in the Americas especially. Like, for example, in Brazil, it is illegal for anyone not to walk on the street without a documentation, like a driver's license. We, we actually have ID cards it's not even driving. We have ID cards because not everybody can afford cars. Certainly, my family could not afford cars. So, but those laws are only enforced on black people, or mostly enforced on black people. You're never going to see any police stopping a white person uh, and asking them for ID. So those, so they have these laws that, that prevent us to even have the right of movement. So they control our movement. Brazil is a difficult place you know and I just I just couldn't in an article of a thousand words totally started to talk about it yeah god I mean I'm getting the message that obviously Afro-Brazilians are treated like second-class citizens and it's wild because we never see this part of Brazil I only heard about the struggles of Afro-Brazilians through Twitter but before that, I thought it was just like beaches and dancing. And, you know, I didn't even think about like the Afro-Brazilian community. I didn't even know they existed because of TV, the brainwashing. It's real. We never see that side of Brazil. And obviously it's intentional. Yeah, that's by design. Mm. That's by design. They really, even the history books, all, a lot of the history books are told by white people. So like when I'm reading a history book from Brazil, I have to interpret the interpretation of the white people and then re-engineer in my mind what really happened. So there's a lot of guessing and there's a lot of um, really only on the 21st century, really Afro-Brazilians start to tell all history in, in stronger numbers, in significant numbers. Of course, there's like exceptions throughout the history, but you know, Brazil is possibly the most racist country in the world. Yeah. I'm hopeful. I, I believe... You know, it's it's really hard to find what's your function in life and what you exist. And I feel that I exist to make sure to shine a light on the Afro-Brazilian realities to the rest of the world. And it's it's not, I'm fluent writer in Portuguese and in English, and there's very few people with that much drive, with that much skills that I have. And I'll use my skills to make sure that everyone knows the true reality of Afro-Brazilians, mm. you know. If it depends on me, that story will come true. 
you know, being in the podcast, being in writing, being in videos, or in all three of those, I will keep telling those stories as much as I can because it needs to come out. I guess now is a good time to segue into your writing. So you've yep. contributed to Growing Up African in Australia. You've written for SBS Voices, Peril Magazine, Ascension. Like you've done it all. Obviously, everyone has different reasons for writing. And I feel like you've sort of touched on your reasons. Um, but what drives you? So the days when you feel like you don't want to write, what's that thing that pushes you to, yeah, jump on the laptop and type away? Yeah, sometimes life gives you opportunities to have a microphone, to have um, a stage. And you have to take these opportunities and make sure you use for the best of your ability, to the better of the people you love. And I love myself and I love my brothers and my mom and my sisters and I love my people. And I feel the injustices that we suffered on the past 500 years needed to be told. You know, the, uh, the first African slave enslaved that arrived in Brazil was in the 1526. That's about 100 years before 1629, 1619, which their first arrival uh, in the Americas, uh, in the North America, in the United States. So we, we have 100 years extra of slavery, virtually. And that obviously caused trauma in our people and in myself. And by confronting that trauma, and not just improving my mental health in myself, but I'm speaking the voices of my, my now dad, grandmother, and my great-grandmother who couldn't talk, you know, but they, you know, they left their wisdom inside of me and it's my responsibility, you know, to do, to do the writing. So that's what pushes me to write some more. I'm very mindful of the time. So I just want to get in two quick questions. So Fair enough. you recently contributed to the book, Racism, Stories on Fear, Hate and Bigotry. Without giving too much away, what can you tell us about your piece? And also, where can people follow your work? Um, yeah, so my piece is called Casa Sanders, and it's about a supermarket trip I experienced when I was a preteen in Brazil, in Rio de Janeiro, and how I got you know, racial profile by another Black man. And this, it's really nuanced because it really talks about this, about uh, racism, white supremacy business is inside of us. You know, is inside of you, inside of me. What we do to control it or to suppress it or to fight it, that's another conversation. But accepting that it's inside of us is important. And that's what my piece is all about. It can also be found, there's a link to it on Kill Your Darlings. If you Google Kill Your Darlings magazine and my name, Guido Mello, you find the same piece because they promote, they were promoting the book. So they published a piece online. For the people who cannot afford the book, but please buy the book <laughs> if you can. Uh, my Instagram account is Afropolitan and then AU. So Afropolitan AU from like Australia, AU. And then my Twitter account is Guido Mello, which is G U I D O M E L O 1. Guido Mello 1 on Twitter. And that's the places you can follow me. And I hope you come. And I hope you, I can lead you on this journey to discover the biggest nation of Africans outside of Africa, which is Brazil. That was Afro-Brazilian, Latinx, multilingual author and poet Guido Mello. 
Check out Guido on Instagram at AfropolitanAU, spelled A-F-R-O-P-O-L-I-T-A-N-A-U, and on Twitter at GuidoMelo1, spelled G-U-I-D-O-M-E-L-O-1. Last but certainly not least is Mohammed Semra. Mohammed is an activist, a UN peace ambassador, and the recipient of Liberty Victoria's Young Voltaire Human Rights Award. Mohammed's life is a Cinderella story, but unlike Cinderella, Mohammed has achieved great heights because of his resilience and drive to speak truth to power. I was lucky enough to chat with Mohammed over the weekend and enjoyed every minute, and I hope you do too. And now, Mohammed Semra. Welcome to Diaspora Blues, Mohammed. Thank you for having me. Firstly, yeah. congratulations on winning the Young Voltaire Human Rights Award. And for folks who don't know what that award is, it's an award for outstanding contribution to or action on free speech, human rights or civil liberties. There's obviously a longer description, but that is the main gist of what that award is. So, Mohammed, what does it feel like to win such a coveted award? It came as a surprise to me, but um, it feels good because I guess it reinforces that I'm on the, like, the right track with the work that I'm doing. So impressive. I mean, you've you've won other awards. You've also um, you attended the Peace Summit of Emerging Leaders at the United Nations Conference. Like you've done incredible work for such a young person. But let's start from the beginning. So let's go back a few years and let's look at how life was like for you then. Were you always outspoken? What were you like at school? So growing up, um, I had a very severe stutter and. So for a very long time, I didn't do the things that I wanted to do because I was afraid that um, people would make fun of me and I would get laughed at. So I didn't do any of the extracurricular activities. I didn't present in class. That did hold me back in a lot of the things that um, I wanted to pursue. Mm-hmm. So it was not up until year nine where my English teacher um, identified okay, that I was very articulate in English and she wanted me to join debating. But then I was like, okay, how can I join debating if I can't even speak properly? <laughs> so, yeah, so the school went and saw a speech therapy class for me, which I attended for two weeks. It was, it was an intensive course. And I learned how to speak from the very beginning. And after that, I was like, okay, now I'm in a position to, I guess, do everything that I couldn't do. And that was join debating. That was join the leadership team. That was be outspoken. And yeah, so after that, um, then you have what happened in Apple. When I was in year 10, me and a group of my mates were denied entry to the Apple store. It was based solely on the color of our skin. The manager was like that they were afraid that we might steal something. And these certain experiences and situations happen to us a lot, especially in shopping centers. Um, you get followed by security guard or there's always a preconceived idea about how you're going to behave. But at that instant, we caught it on camera. And when we post it, we can show the world, I guess, what we experience every day. And I guess that was the first time where I saw the power of speaking up. After that, we got a Massive response from Apple. Um, the CEO, Tim Cook, um, apologized and they put in, I guess, things to ensure that doesn't happen again. And that was retrain all the staff around the world in customer inclusion. Do you remember, I mean, it was a few years ago, but do you remember what made you want to go, okay, 
I've got to say something. I guess I wasn't expecting that from Apple because Apple's always like a friendly place and that's how we perceived it, right? Um, so after school, we'll always go there, we'll look at the new phone. Um, and it was kind of a place just to go and like see and, and have fun, you know? So I wasn't expecting that for Apple. So when I did receive that response, okay, um, we were really upset mm. and we decided to speak out because for us it was, okay, um, does this happen to anybody else? And how can we prevent this from happening? And for us, the only way was to shed light on this issue. In school, you were also a school captain. What did that responsibility include? I always wanted to join the leadership team, right? And uh, the problem was, is that I didn't see anyone that looked like me represented in that position. Um, there has never been a person from a cult background um, become school captain. So I guess it was easy for me just to self-reject. But I knew how important it was for a person from a cultural and linguistically diverse background to, I guess, take on that position and then show the younger kids that, okay, um, they can do it too. And it was all about starting a precedent for me. So once I did become school captain, okay, after that, it was, it was how can I, in my position, um, implement things to make it easier on the students and especially the students from multicultural diverse backgrounds. And there was a lot of initiatives that we undertook. We worked on how do we increase school spirit how can we make the school environment where people can come and don't have to bring the excess luggage that their community does? And that was by, okay, establishing um, platforms where students can voice their opinions. Um, we work closely with the well-being team to um, tackle certain issues. That's very impressive. You obviously know it's impressive. I don't have to tell you that. But I'm guessing being a role model as well comes with a lot of responsibility. So how do you handle that? Because I'm guessing it'd be a lot of pressure as well. It does come with pressure. And I feel like it's hard to be the first to do something, right? Because you don't know the reaction you're going to get. When I joined debating, I was the first African to join debating. Um, when I joined the leadership team, I was the first African to do that. So it was very hard. And I, and I saw my friends wanting to take that position, but self-rejecting because they didn't see themselves represented and they just never saw themselves t- taking that position. So I was like, okay, this is a problem that needs to be fixed, basically. You founded Endeavour Youth Australia. Can you tell us about this project? So Endeavour Youth Australia is all about identifying and investing in our young multicultural nation. When I was growing up, one thing that I saw happen was a lot of opportunity was not presented to me because there was a preconception that I didn't want to succeed, right? So a lot of the um, extracurricular activities, all, all, all the leadership opportunities, I wasn't shown because there was an assumption that I didn't want to do well. So I guess through Endeavour Youth Australia, what we work on is one, giving young people opportunity. And we believe through the provision of mentoring and opportunity and training, I guess anything's possible, right? If you give the students choices, if you give them, I guess, pathways, then they're more likely to take it. And a large thing that we focus on with Endeavour Australia is this um, unconscious bias, and especially unconscious, unconscious bias in schools. And we work a lot on cultural capabilities. Um, so we give cultural awareness training to teachers. We um, run five to nine week academies for students in schools. Yeah, and you're already doing that by just being you and by doing excellent work. I feel like you've already 
changed that narrative. So good on you, Mohammed. Um, finally, what's next for you? What upcoming projects or work are you undertaking? So at the moment, I'm focusing heavily on Endeavour Youth Australia. We are working with our partners um, and schools. So I guess like really try and re-engage kids in their learning. And that's very important. And most important thing for me is that I want the young people that I work with to go to school and feel safe, right? Go to school knowing that they won't be just discriminated against and they don't have to worry about what's happening outside because the school, I guess, has their best interest at heart. And that, folks, was the brilliant Muhammad Semra. We at Diaspora Blues wish this brother all the best in his future endeavours. Muhammad is on Twitter at Muhammad Semra, spelt M-O-H-A-M-E-D-S-E-M-R-A. He's also on Instagram at Muhammad underscore Semra. As usual, stay up to date on Diaspora Blues via our Instagram page at 3cr.diasporablues and listen to this episode and previous episodes on our 3CR page at 3cr.org.au slash diasporablues. I'm Ayan Shirwa and I hope to see you next week. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.